Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. My name is Brenda, and welcome to Horrifying History, where you will hear about the unexplained, paranormal, and supernatural happenings that has stained the pages of history. Most murders have a pattern or have clues. Many times, the motive is made clear by what is found at the crime scene. But sometimes, cases don't fit into a handy little template. For some reason, the cause of death is not clear. In our day and age, though, due to advances in DNA technology, there usually is a hint to where to start, but this wasn't always so, and this was the case of a man found in the capital of South Australia in 1948. Welcome to bonus episode 16, The Somerton Man. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. On a warm evening on November 30th, 1948, John Bain Leon and his wife decided to take a walk on Somerton Beach, which is a seaside resort that is a short distance away from Adelaide. As they walked, they saw a well-dressed man lying on the sand. 
His head was propped up against the seawall, with his legs outstretched and his feet crossed. He was motionless, and his left arm was splayed out on the sand. John and his wife decided that he must be asleep. They thought he was likely drunk and passed out. But then, about a half an hour later when they were walking back, they saw the man was still there. He was in the exact same position. But now, the couple noticed a few more things that stood out. Firstly, he was immaculately dressed in a suit and his shoes were polished to a point of being quite shiny. This wasn't normal beachwear even for those times. He wasn't moving at all, so the couple thought he must be very deeply asleep. That would explain why his face was surrounded by mosquitoes. Now John mentioned to his wife that he must be really dead to the world if he didn't notice them, so they continued on home, and it wasn't until the next morning that it became obvious that the man wasn't just dead to the world, he was just dead. Now John returned to the beach to take a morning swim, and when he saw people clustered around that seawall, where he saw the man the night before, he became a little curious. Walking closer, he saw the man in the exact same position, with his head resting on the seawall, with his feet crossed. But now, the body was cold. There was no noticeable marks on the body, and a half-smoked cigarette was lying on his collar like it fell out of his mouth. The body was taken to Royal Adelaide Hospital three hours later. Dr. John Barclay Bennett set the time of death to be no earlier than 2 a.m. and noted that the likely cause of death was heart failure. But he added to this by saying he suspected this man was actually poisoned. They went through his clothing and found tickets from Adelaide to the beach where he was found, matches, and a pack of Army Club cigarettes that contained none of that brand, but seven cigarettes of a more expensive brand. He also had a pack of gum, two combs, but no wallet. He carried no cash or identification. There were no name tags in his clothing, and all the maker labels were carefully cut out. They also found that one of the man's pockets was repaired using an unusual type of orange thread. A full autopsy was done on that body the following day, after police exhausted their best leads to discover who this man actually was. The autopsy, it did nothing to help with this. It revealed that the man's pupils were smaller than normal and were considered, according to documentation, to be, and I quote, unusual. A line of drool ran down the side of his mouth where he laid, and it was assumed he was unable to swallow it. His spleen was extremely enlarged. It was firm and over three times the normal size. His liver, it was distended, and it was filled with blood. In the man's stomach was the remains of his very last meal. It was a pastry, and with that in his stomach was blood. A lot of blood. This too suggested that the man was poisoned, but there was no evidence that the poison was in the pastry. Now how the man was found started to make a bit of sense to the investigators. Leaning against the seawall in a slumped position with his arm out, it seemed less and less like he was drunk, and more likely that he was suffering from a lethal dose of something that very slowly took effect. But extensive testing on both blood and body tissues by an expert chemist failed to find the tiniest trace of poison. In fact, no cause of death was found. The dead man showed other things that were quite odd also. 
His calf muscles were very well developed. Even though he was thought to be in his late 40s, he was actually built like an athlete. His toes had this kind of weird wedge shape to them, and during an inquest that occurred about this, one expert testified that, and I quote, I have not seen the tendency of calf muscle so pronounced as in this case. His feet were rather striking, suggesting, this is my own assumption, that he had been in the habit of wearing high-heeled and pointed shoes. Now another expert at the inquest speculated that maybe this man could have been a ballet dancer. Now, all of this stumped Adelaide's coroner, Thomas Cleland. He reached out to a well-known professor, Sir Cedric Stanton Hicks, who told him it must have been a very rare poison that was used, one that would break down shortly after death, leaving no trace. He believed that there was two possible candidates, Digitalis and Strophanthin. Of the two, Hicks believed that Strophanthin was the culprit. This poison is known historically as being used by a little-known Somali tribe where they make poison arrows. It is a herb, and its seeds are used sometimes in medications. It contains chemicals that stimulates the heart and lowers the blood sugar. It is very unsafe to use this not under the direct supervision of a healthcare provider due to its multiple side effects, which can include an irregular heartbeat. Now, more confused than ever, the police continued to investigate. They fingerprinted the deceased and circulated his prints throughout Australia and then submitted them to law enforcement agencies around the world. They got no response. People from all over went to see this body in the mortuary in hopes to recognize him. Again, no luck. His picture was published in newspapers, and not one person came forward to tell authorities who this dead man actually was. By January 11th, the police had investigated and dismissed every lead they had. They decided to widen their investigation in attempts to locate any possible abandoned personal possessions. Maybe this could give them some leads. They checked every hotel, dry cleaner, lost property office, and railroad station for miles around, but they got a hit. On January 12th, detectives went to the main railroad station in Adelaide, and it was there that they were shown a brown suitcase that was left in a cloakroom on November 30th. People who worked at the train station could not remember a thing about who actually left that suitcase, and sadly, the contents did not reveal a whole bunch. Inside, though, there was a spool of orange thread that matched what was used to repair the dead man's pants, but every trace of the identity of the owner of the case was removed. The case itself had no stickers or markings of any kind, and a label had been torn off one of its sides. The tags were all removed from all but three items of clothing inside, and these had a name that appeared to look like Keen, K-E-A-N, or T-Keen, T-K-E-E-N-E. Police tried to track down anybody with that name without any success. They came to the conclusion that someone had purposely left them on or put them in the suitcase knowing this was not the dead man's name to mislead the authorities. The remainder of the contents were also no help, but were quite intriguing. There was a stencil kit that was used by officers on merchant ships who were responsible for stenciling cargo, a table knife with the handle cut down, and a coat that was created using a type of feather stitch which was not used in Australia. 
a tailor studied that stitching and identified it as American in origin, which suggested that the coat, and maybe the victim, was either from the United States or traveled during the war years. But searches done of the shipping and immigration records throughout the country again produced no results. At this point, the police decided to bring in another expert into the investigation. John Cleland was a professor of pathology at the University of Adelaide, and he was asked to re-examine the body and the possessions in hopes he could give some insight on just who this man actually was. Four months after the man was found, John's work produced a final piece of evidence that further baffled authorities. John discovered a small pocket that was sewn into the waistband of the dead man's pants. Everyone before him missed it since it appeared to be hidden. It seems to have been originally intended to hold a pocket watch, but inside, there was no pocket watch. Inside this pocket was a small scrap of paper that was tightly rolled up. When the paper was unrolled, it showed that it had two words written in a typeset that was quite elaborate. And those two words were, Tem and Shud. Now at this point in the story, I'm presuming many of you guys are wondering what the hell Tem and Shud is, that is, unless you speak Persian. Frank Kennedy, who was a crime reporter for Adelaide Advertiser's newspaper, recognized the words as Persian, and he contacted the police to suggest that they get a copy of a book of poetry by Omar Khayyam that was written in the 12th century. The translation of this book was very popular in Australia during the Second World War, and several editions were printed. The police studied them all to come to the conclusion that none of them matched the font on the scrap of paper. Now, one thing they did learn was that the words themselves came from the author's romantic reflections on life and death. They were, in fact, the last words in most English translations of the book because the phrase itself meant, it is ended. At face value, this clue suggested to the police that the death may have actually been a suicide. In fact, this belief became so strong that the South Australia police never did turn their missing person inquiries into a full-blown murder investigation. But this didn't bring him any closer to finding out who this man was. Meanwhile, police started making arrangements for the man's burial while being concerned they were about to bury one of their very few pieces of evidence. So after the body was embalmed, a cast was taken of the head and upper body. They then buried the body and sealed it under concrete in a plot in dry ground that was specifically chosen in case they had to exhume him. Now here's the next weird thing. As late as 1978, flowers would be found at odd intervals on this man's grave. No one could figure out who left them there or why. Then in July, which was about eight months after the body was found, a man came to the police department in Adelaide with a copy of the Book of Poetry and a very strange story. Right after the unknown dead man was found, the man went for a drive with his brother-in-law in a car he kept parked only a couple hundred yards from Somerton Beach. The brother-in-law found the book, which was brought to the police station lying on the floor by the back seats of the vehicle. Each man presumed that it belonged to the other, and they thought nothing more of it. It was placed in the car's glove compartment and sat there ever since. After reading a newspaper article about the dead man and the search for his identity, both men took it out of the glove compartment to take a closer look. They discovered that part of the last page was ripped out, and this included the words that were found on the dead man. They immediately went to the police. 
Detective Sergeant Leon Lean took a close look at that book. Almost immediately, he found a phone number written in pencil over the back cover. Using a magnifying glass, he saw some faint impressions of other letters written in capitals underneath. Finally, a real clue. Police found that the phone number was unlisted, and it belonged to a young nurse that just happened to live by Summerton Beach. Her name was never released, but she's referred to as Justin. Now, she was embarrassed to be involved, and she told her story very reluctantly since she was now living with the man who would later become her husband. She admitted she gave a copy of the book to a man she met during the war, and his name was Alfred Boxall. Finally, the police said, Hey, we solved this mystery. Alfred has to be the dead man, right? Wrong. Within days, they discovered that Alfred was alive and well and living in New South Wales. He still had the book that Justin gave him, and it was intact. The scrap of paper must have come from somewhere else. Perhaps if the police questioned Justin better versus trying to protect her from embarrassment, it may have helped the case. They chose not to at the time, but they did find a couple pieces of information that, when questioned again, seemed quite interesting. After being questioned again, Justin recalled that sometime during the previous year, she had come home to be told by neighbors that an unknown man had come to her residence and asked for her. She couldn't remember when, but when she was shown a cast of the dead man's face, she definitely reacted. Police said she looked completely taken aback and looked like she was about to faint. She seemed to recognize him, yet she firmly told police that she had no idea who he was. Now, since Justin was sticking to her story, it meant that police only had one more lead. That faint impression that was with the phone number on the back of the poetry book. After it was examined under ultraviolet light, five lines of jumbled letters could be seen. The second one was crossed out. The first three were separated from the last two by a pair of straight lines with an X written over them. Police thought that this could be some sort of code, but breaking a code from a small sample of characters was almost impossible. The police did try their best, though. They sent the message to Naval Intelligence, which at the time was where the best cipher experts in Australia were located. They also allowed for the message to be published by the press. This resulted in many people, both professional and amateur, trying to break the code. But nobody could do it, and the Navy concluded that with the information they had, the code appeared to be unbreakable. They said in part the following. From the manner in which the lines had been represented as being set out in the original, it is evident that the end of each line indicates a break in sense. There is an insufficient number of letters for definite conclusions to be based on analysis, but the indications together with the acceptance of the above breaks in sense indicate, in so far as can be seen, that the letters do not constitute any kind of simpler cipher or code. The frequency of the occurrence of letters, whilst inconclusive, corresponds more favorably with the table of frequencies in the initial letters of words in English than with any other table. Accordingly, a reasonable explanation would be that the lines are the initial letters of words of a verse of poetry or such like. And this is where this mystery rests. The police never cracked the code or never identified the dead man. 
Justin died without ever saying why she almost fainted after seeing the likeness of the dead man's face. When the South Australia coroner published the final results of his investigation, his report concluded with him saying that, and I quote, I am unable to say who the deceased was. I am unable to say how he died or what was the cause of death. In more recent times, true crime buffs have started to study all the loose ends and remaining puzzles in this case, and this has led to some theories. Firstly, the dead man's identity is still unknown. It is presumed that Justin knew him and he may have been the man who came to see her at her apartment. Could it be that the solution is in Justin's activities during World War II? Did she give all of her male friends a copy of a poetry book? And if she did, could the dead man be her former lover? Why would she not want to confess to have known him? Why would she be so embarrassed and want to be protected? Modern day research shows that Justin had a son. An analysis of the boy's features in comparison to the unknown man shows some interesting familiarities. Could it be that the dead man was the boy's father? If so, did Justin want to protect her reputation by hiding that she may have had a child out of wedlock? Did her soon-to-be husband know that this boy may not be his? Could she or her fiancé have killed the unknown man to hide this secret? Or maybe, was the dead man told that he couldn't see his son and this resulted in him committing suicide? There are many people who disagree with this theory due to how the man died. Is it believable that the man would kill himself with an extremely rare poison? The suspected poison is not something that somebody can just walk down to their local pharmacy and get, or maybe get from the grocery store. And this brings us to our next theory. Due to the rarity of the poison, many people believe that this dead man was a spy. Alfred Boxel worked in intelligence during the war, and the unknown man died at the beginning of the Cold War. During this time, one of the most secret military bases in the world was only a few hundred miles away from Adelaide. It was here where the British had a rocket testing facility. Could it be that he was killed because of what he knew? Many people think this is possible, that the poison was actually administered through his cigarettes. This may explain why his Army Club cigarette pack contained seven cigarettes of another brand. Now, as much as both of these series sound like a bit of a stretch, there are a couple strange things in this case that points away from this man committing suicide. The first is the copy of the poetry book. Police made an exhausted search of the exact copy of that book, and the closest they found was a near-identical version, but it wasn't exact. It was later discovered that another man died in Australia after World War II, and he had a copy of the same book with him. George's copy was published in London, and inside of it, it said it was a seventh edition. According to the publisher and libraries from around the world, there were only five editions. This means that the seventh edition that was on both of the bodies did not exist. Could it be that they were not books of poetry at all, but perhaps a spy-based code-breaking tool? And that brings us to the final mystery in this strange story the neglected piece of evidence that wasn't looked into at the time. In 1959, a man who was walking on Somerton Beach gave a statement to police. 
He walked on the beach the evening the man died, and according to his statement, he saw a man carrying another on his shoulder near the water's edge. He couldn't give a description of the man that he thought was carrying his drunk friend home from the night. Now this brings up one question. According to all the other witness testimony, no one paid attention to the victim's face. Is it possible that the body found was the man being carried on the stranger's shoulder? And if so, did the deceased actually die in the spot he was found, or was he dumped there to confuse authorities? Many people think that this is something a spy would do, but in my opinion, that's what many, many murderers do whether they're a spy or not. So, who was the Summerton man? To this day, no one actually knows, and it is possible that no one will ever find out. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Thank you all for joining me for our latest episode of Horrifying History. Who do you think the Summerton Man is? How did he actually meet his end? Join us on Facebook at Horrifying History, on Instagram at Horrifying underscore History, and on Twitter at Horrifying H-I-S-T-1, and let us know what you think. I have also been asked by you guys, what is the best way that you can support this show? Now, the best way is by hitting that subscribe button for my podcast and by giving us a five-star review with your podcast provider. With each subscribe button hit and by giving us a five-star review, you let more people know about this show. Now, the added bonus is that when you hit that subscribe button, you will automatically download our next episode on its day of release. It's a great way not to miss our next episode, which you guys have requested. The Dark Side of Disney The Tales Behind the Fairy Tales, Part 2. Feel free to reach out to me anytime at horrifyinghistory at outlook.com with any comments, questions, or story ideas. I love hearing from you guys. And if you want to bring a piece of horrifying history home with you, you can find amazing things in our store, which you can find by going to www.redbubble.com and typing horrifying history in the search box at the top of the page. Thank you all for listening again today, and until next time.
say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.